0: Good morning. Uh, Ladies, thank you for beautiful music that is um, so fitting, fitting to what we're going to talk about today. Rick Aldrich Rick Ames is a former CIA agent turned KGB double agent. He was convicted of espionage in 1994. His acts of betrayal led to the compromise of at least 100 U.S. Op- intelligence operations and to the execution of at least 10 U.S. sources. It is reported he shared a huge quantity of information about our foreign defense and security policies. Why did he do it? It's not like kids dream of growing up to be a traitor and a double agent. Like most things, it came about gradually. He was known to be a heavy drinker. His marriage began to disintegrate. He took a position in Mexico, and while there, he would cheat on his wife with several extramarital affairs. That marriage would eventually end in divorce and have terrible financial consequences. He was desperate for money. And so one day in 1985, the Soviets, he gave the Soviets the names of two KGB officers that may have defected. He was awarded $50,000 for the information. He had originally thought that it would be a one-time deal, but in fact, it was the beginning of a double life for him. During the day, he would work for the CIA, doing his job and gathering sensitive, classified information, and then he would walk out the door and have lunch with a Soviet contact who would pay him handsomely. It's estimated, over the decade, the Soviets paid him $4.6 million to betray his country and his co-workers. Not surprisingly, it was spending the money that got him caught. His co-workers noticed that his suits were tailor-made and fancier than what his superiors could afford. He had newly capped white teeth. He paid cash for a big fancy house and he drove a Jaguar. His co-workers would go on to say that he was a murdering traitor all because he wanted a bigger house and a jaguar. He was an adulterer, a cheater, a traitor, a murderer. He had a divided allegiance. He was a double agent. This morning, James is going to confront his readers with something very similar. This morning, we want to ask, are you living a double life? Are your loyalties divided? Are you consorting with the enemy? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 4? James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask I have uh, shared this story with you before. But when my sons were little, they were great friends and great playmates, and they would literally spend hours in my front yard playing these games that they made up together. And one of them was a type of wiffle ball baseball game where they put a bucket of water at every base. And they would have to... When they ran the bases, they had to dip their hand into the water. And any time they... Like, through the ball, like to pitch, they would have to take that ball and dip it into the water. Um, I never understood all the rules, but uh, apparently they seemed to have them, and they seemed to thoroughly enjoy playing it together. But on occasion, things would go uh, terribly wrong, and there would be some type of disagreement, and pretty soon I would start to hear the yelling and the bickering and the fighting. And since it was taking place in my front yard, um, we had a routine that went something like this. I would go and I would open the door and I would say to them, get in here. (laughs) You sound like a bunch of heathens. (laughs) And then I would bring them in and make them sit at my kitchen table, which they found torturous. I usually would open my Bible and we would begin to try to figure out, get to the bottom, of whatever it was they were fighting about, and then work on correcting it. In chapter 4, we're going to see Pastor James do something very similar. It is as if he says to us, his readers, get in here. You're acting like a bunch of heathens. He says, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts. It is as if he is about to sit us at the kitchen table and help us get to the bottom of our conflicts and then work on correcting it. Now, if you have read chapter three, he's just told them in chapter three that they're supposed to be peaceful and gentle and full of mercy and harmonious. That is what is supposed to be characterizing us, but it's not. He says in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, that word quarrel, and I have this on your paper, it means to fight, to war against, to battle, okay? That's the language of war, all right? Then the word fight means to battle, fight, combat, all right? Next to those two words, I would write in big letters the word conflict, conflict. James is addressing conflict. The big ones, the little ones, and everything in between. He says, he goes on to say in verse one, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? All right, that word passions in the Greek is the word hedone, your hedonism, your desire for pleasure is at war within you, all right? In other words, is it not because you want something and cannot get it? Do you know every time that I would sit my kids down at the kitchen table and we would try to get to the bottom of a conflict, it it always started with something like this. Well, he said, I never touched the base and I did. Or he said my run didn't count. Or he said it was a strike, but it wasn't. Without exception, the problem was always seen as the other guy's fault. All right, now James is going to basically pull the rug out from underneath us, and he's going to say, all right, listen, as we talk about conflict, let's make sure that your understanding is, is sound and your understanding is right. You might remember back in chapter 1 when we talked about sin and temptation, we said that it's an inside job. We're going to find the same thing with conflict. It's an inside job. So, what causes all the fighting and the quarreling and the bickering and the arguing? What is the cause of the tension between you? What is the cause of you giving her the cold shoulder or the dirty look or the unanswered text or the cryptic post on Facebook? Why is there conflict in your relationships? Why is there disharmony in your home? Why can't you get along with each other? Answer, is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Is it not your pleasures that wage war in your members? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, he says, you fight because you don't get your own way. Now, that word murder here, that is not likely a physical murder. It was not likely they were physically murdering each other. Remember, James is regurgitating the teaching of Jesus. So I want you to think back of the way Jesus expounded on murder when he spoke on the Sermon of the Mount and think that. James is saying, you lust, and you covet, and you cannot obtain, and so you, and so you murder. Things get ugly. You fight and quarrel. I have six grandkids, they are under, they are the ages five and under, and I have been watching this passage come to life. It goes something like this. Child number one sees something he wants. He covets, but he does not have. In fact, child number two has it. So child number one approaches child number two and tries to negotiate. Sometimes that's effective, sometimes it is not. So what happens next? Well, things get murderous. (laughs) Sometimes maybe there is a punch thrown. Maybe there is a nearby toy that is used to do the talking. Maybe there's just a lot of screaming. What is the source of your murder and fighting and quarreling. James says it's very simple. It is the fact that you want something and you cannot get it. You desire something and something or someone is telling you no. And so you get hateful and ugly, you get angry, maybe you get pouty or snippy or quarrelsome or difficult. Maybe you had expectations on how you wanted to spend the weekend or the evening or the income tax refund. Or maybe you were expecting someone's approval or their interest or maybe just once you want your child to be the one to get the honor and the attention that he deserves and then something or somebody gets in the way and it doesn't happen. You want something, you lust, you get envious and you don't obtain. Here is our first point. Number one, according to James, at the root of conflict is not getting our own way. In the example of my grandkids, it would be very easy for that first child to think this is his fault, he won't share, He's not being nice. He's not being kind. And listen, that could very well, there could be truth in that. But James wants us to understand the source. The source, the start of it all, was when he desired something in his heart and he could not get it. He was unable to get it. And James is saying that's the same thing with us. You can blame all kinds of things and make all kinds of excuses, but the source... The root is that you want something and you can't get it. Now, I have <clears throat> seen this clearly in my own life. You know, at home, it's just my husband and I, and for the most part, the atmosphere is very sweet and very peaceful. But on occasion, there can be tension, there can be quarreling, there can be arguing on my point on my part, and do you know why that is? Well, you do now. I wanted something, and I did not get it. Usually, it's because I wanted help. I thought I deserved help, and I didn't get it. Maybe it's because I thought I deserved attention, or credit, or honor, and I didn't get it. And so what do I do? Well, I get snippy. I complain. I criticize. I murder. I don't get what I want, and so I murder verse 4. James is just getting started. 4.4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, you adulterous people. Now, why call them adulterous? Why not just call them a bunch of heathens like I used to tell my kids? Okay, well, he's got a couple of very good reasons, all right? For starters, those first readers or those listeners would have known the way the Old Testament continually compared the relationship between God and his people to a marriage, all right? God was the jealous, loving, faithful husband, and Israel was usually, Israel was the wife, and uh, she was usually the cheating, whoring wife that was running after Um, other gods to worship idols. And so the terminology would have been very quickly recognized. All right, but I want you to see something else. Notice he says, you adulterous people. All right, um, you know, a heathen, a heathen just goes about living their life as if there is no God. All right, so adulterous is going to suggest something different. All right, um, in order to be an adulterer, you first have to be married, all right? Um, the adulterer says, I love my husband and all, but I just um, want to have a little fun on the side. Or I love my husband, he's just not meeting my needs, my emotional needs. Or I just don't feel very close to him right now. And so... Um, or, or maybe they say, I love my husband. I'm, I'm not really sure how I got to this point. All I know is I'm really captivated with the new guy. The adulterer wanders from the relationship. All right, here's our next point. Number two, worldliness in Christians is spiritual adultery. James has very purposely used the term adulterous people and it's both brutal and loving because on one hand, he is addressing our cheating and yet on the other hand, he's emphasizing God's involvement and commitment to the relationship, okay? He says in verse four, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James says, don't you know that when you are friends with the world, it is as if your husband is cheating on you with your worst rival. It's like your husband bringing a hated rival into the marriage bed. David Platt says, all the heartache and the pain and betrayal of infidelity are wrapped up in that image. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were to love the world. I mean, for God so loved the world um, doesn't it say that? And, and yes, and the text actually uses the same word as, as here for love. So here's our next point, or for world. Um, here's our next point, number three. Friendship with the world does not mean it's wrong to have friends who are unbelievers. Right? That is not what this is talking about at all. all right? We are to be loving and kind and merciful with the people of the world. We're to be loving people the way God loves people. All right, so that world, that word world can have several different meanings and the context is going to determine what the meaning should be. In this case and in most cases uh, of the New Testament, the word world means this, and it's on your paper number four. The term world refers to the evil, corrupt, humanistic system controlled by Satan that leads us away from the true worship of God. Okay, now you might want to circle that word system because so often when we speak of the word world, we are referring to a system, all right? And then next to the word Satan, you might want to write the word ruler or prince because he is the ruler or the prince of this system, okay? He's the one overseeing the system. And, a, and because he is the ruler of this world, here's our next point, number five. The world is at war with God. All right, the world is, anti, is an anti-God culture, okay? It hates God. All right, so then what does it mean to love the world or be friends with the world? Or sometimes you hear the word worldliness, All right, that's our next point, number six. Worldliness is an affection for the values and pursuits of the anti-God culture that permeates this fallen world. All right, over the years, I have noticed worldliness explained in all kinds of ways. I've seen churches that would not allow drums or guitars to be used because they were considered worldly. Organs, pianos... Godly, drums, guitars, worldly. My husband had a grandmother that could not play cards in the home because it was considered to be worldly. If you would have asked me years ago to describe worldliness, I probably would have given you a list of activities not to do. I'm not going to do that today. Instead, I want to give you three categories that are going to help us to understand a little bit about worldliness. And I have these on your paper Place for them. These are three things that the world appeals to or encourages you to do. And I want us to remember how the, how the world and Satan works. Remember, it's going to dangle the carrot in front of us. And it's going to appeal to certain things of our flesh. And so here's what it's going to do. Here's one of the first things the world says. The world says, number one, be self-reliant. Be self-reliant. The world says you should act independently. You don't need to study your Bible. You should do things your own way or look at what this blogger is saying to do or look at what this celebrity is doing. You should do that. Or you should look deep in your heart. You should follow your own heart and trust your own instincts. You know, my kids grew up in the 80s and 90s, and in those days, most every TV show or movie that was for kids or family ended with some version of an adult sitting down with a child and telling them to follow their heart or believe in themselves or to trust their own heart. That is terrible advice. That's very worldly advice. Brings us to our next point. Number two, the world is telling you to be self-indulgent. Self-indulgent. Indulge yourself. Life is all about pleasure and having fun and satisfaction, and you deserve this, or you need that, or this is all about you, or at least 50-50. You need to make lots of money and climb the corporate ladder so that you can buy lots of stuff. You need to focus on yourself. And that brings us to our third one. The world tells you to be self-promoting. Self-promoting. It is the world that says, you go ahead, honey, and toot your own horn or your kid's horn. You should talk about yourself. You should tweet. You should text. You should post about your opinions. Everyone's dying to know what you think. You should send that tweet about how awesome your kids are. You should take that selfie and post it on Facebook. You should wear tight-fitting clothes to show off your assets. You should self-promote. Self-reliant, self-indulgent, self-promoting. Key word here being self. The world system wants you to focus on yourself, on your will, and on your way. And can I point out here, that is the opposite of the message of the cross and of the gospel. The gospel says, I die daily. The gospel says, pick up your cross and follow me. Put your flesh to death. I'd write the word die next to all three of those things. Die. Die to self, reliance, and self-indulgence, and self-promoting. James says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word friendship in the Greek is the word philia. That should sound familiar. Um, In the past, when we've talked about the different kinds of love, and we've talked about phileo love, that's the kind of love that exists between two friends, that share common interests and are growing and have a growing affection between between them. So James is saying, you have a shared interest. You have a growing affection for the world and it is putting you in a position of hostility toward God. Uh, I want to share something with you that I have come to observe over years of teaching children and women, first children and then women. I've crossed paths with a lot of women over the years. And uh, I've seen them anywhere between being very lukewarm to being passionately excited about the things of God. But when it came to their children, worldliness did not seem to be a pressing concern uh, for whatever reason. And so those kids spent every night at a ball field or a dance studio. They were allowed to watch all the popular TV shows or movies, and they usually had a TV or a computer in their rooms. They had all the latest gadgets and games. They were allowed to wear whatever they wanted. Their lives were really no different than the average unbeliever's kids. At Wednesday night church, I would hear the parents say something like this. Uh, Well, you know, he runs every night of the week, so we let him decide for himself what to do about church. By the time those kids were in high school, they might be attending if their friends were going or if it was something fun, but they had little to no interest or appetite for the things of God. Somewhere along the way, they got the impression that they could be friends with God and friends with the world at the same time. But it does not work like that. You cannot be on both teams at the same time. Can I tell you, it always brought heartache without fail. I want you to notice the end of verse 4 He said, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, makes himself. You might want to underline that. He's doing the action, makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, there are all kinds of problems and heartaches that you are going to have with your children that you have no control over. And then there are things that we bring on ourselves. And this is one of them. When we cozy up to the world, or we model that in our homes, or we promote it in the lives of our children, we make ourselves enemies of God. We basically teach our children the art of compromise. And then James is going to go on to explain why this is so serious. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, depending on what Bible version you're using, that may translate very differently than this. Um, It is said that this verse is one of the most difficult in the entire New Testament to translate. And so uh, we can't be real dogmatic about it. In the original language, there's no capitals. So the debate is, is this referring to the divine spirit or the human spirit when it uses the word spirit? Now, given the context, it is usually understood to be describing the jealousy God has for our devotion. God is described in the Old Testament as being a jealous God, okay? Not of us like Oprah and Brad Pitt talk about, but for us, for our complete devotion. James is saying, listen, you can't have multiple lovers. God will not share you. Now, I want you to go back on your papers. I think it's uh, definition number six, the definition of worldliness, and in big letters write the words idolatry. Idolatry. The second commandment makes clear that Israel was not to worship idols because God was a jealous God. In the Old Testament, it was idolatry that among the people that would provoke God to jealousy. So here's what I want you to see. Worldliness in the New Testament is like idolatry in the Old You want to understand the workings of worldliness, study idolatry in the Old Testament. I once um, helped teach a two-year precept course on the on the kings of uh, the Old Testament kings, and it took us two years. And at the end of two years, I was just so struck with just the seriousness of idolatry and how serious God took it and the impact that it always had on the, on the generation coming up behind, on the impact of the children. All right, here's our um, next point. Number seven, we must model and teach our children that God desires complete and undivided devotion from his children or we make ourselves his enemy. That's a mouthful. Now, you may be thinking, how can I possibly model faithfully, this faithfully, and teach my children this? How can I possibly love God with that kind of devotion and passion? How can I live up to the expectations of a jealous God? I'm surrounded with all these enticing things that I like and that my flesh finds appealing and wants. And my affections are torn. How can I stop being so adulterous? He answers that in the next verse. Look what he says. And it too is all through the Old Testament. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. He gives a greater grace. We sin and we cheat and we make a mess of things, but we should not despair because he gives more grace grace. You may have great affection and an attachment to the world, but God will supply you with the grace, a greater grace. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is the grace that is in you than he who is in the world. Yes, God requires full devotion, but he will provide you the grace. You need to be faithful. Now, how does he do that? Well, how can we receive his grace? Take a look at the end of verse 6. He says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives it. He gives grace. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what would that look like to be humble? What would the humility involve? I want you to notice verse 6. He gives grace to the humble. And then verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord. One pastor explained, we're about to get a humble sandwich. So um, let's see what's involved. Verse 7. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And I have these listed on your paper. Okay? Submit. Bow the knee. That word submit, that's the Greek word hupotasso. Okay, and if you've been coming to abide very long, that word should sound very familiar. We um, because every time we talk about submitting to our husbands, which seems like at least once a semester, uh, we use that word. Right, that's the word that's used five times to describe the way wives are to submit to their husbands. So we should be experts on this by now. Um, if you remember, hupo meant under. Tasso meant to arrange. All right, it was a military word and it meant to place or arrange under in an orderly fashion. So when you think of this word, I don't want you to think of a slave being captured and put in chains and forced to submit. No. No, instead, I want you to think of a soldier that is lining up behind his captain so that there's order and success. James is saying, bow the knee, arrange yourselves under the authority of God, line up behind God. The world is telling you, you should do what you want. You should be following your heart, you should be chasing the American dream. The world is basically telling you to follow anyone but God, and James is saying, snap out of it, that's spiritual adultery. He says, submit, therefore, to God. Bow the knee. You have been living independently. Come back. Come back and submit to God. It's the proud heart that refuses to bow. It's the humble heart that submits. Next, he says, resist the devil. Remember, the devil is one of the three enemies. He is the one dangling the carrot and trying to tempt you and lead you into sin. And James says, resist him. Well, how do you do that? You say no to the things that he is dangling in front of you. Well, don't I have to say um, something with authority? Like, Satan, be gone. Satan, leave me. And then, you know, say Bible verses or something like that. Listen, the primary way that you resist the devil is to submit to God. To line yourself up under the authority of God. Yes, quote Bible verses so that you obey them. You resist Satan when you align yourself under the authority of God. You see, it is impossible to be friends with Satan, and resist him at the same time. It is impossible to be in, it is impossible to resist Satan and to make yourself an enemy of God at the same time. Now I said that wrong. It's impossible to resist Satan when you have made yourself an enemy of God. or you've put yourself in a position where God is standing against you. James is telling us, quit befriending Satan and line up behind Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. The implication is that you're the one that left. You're the one that's chasing after other lovers. And James says, go back. He says, be like the prodigal son. Go back. Leave the pigsty and return. Draw near to God. James is telling them, cultivate fellowship with God. And next to this one, you might want to write the words intimacy or communion. Cultivate intimacy or communion with God. You know, I will so often hear women complain that they do not feel like God is near or that they are not close to God or that he is not close to them. Now, if you're um, in a time of serious suffering, I get that. But sometimes that's not the case. And so you need to ask why. You may remember last semester we talked about the pastor that before he would counsel someone, he wanted to see their checkbook. He wanted to see where their heart was. Well, what are you treasuring? Have you been treasuring the world? What would your checkbook say? Would your checkbook say that you've been treasuring the world? What about your calendar? What would it say about your affections? James says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. You see, the greatest defense that we have against Satan and the world is to be close and totally and intimate and totally enthralled with God. We are far less tempted to chase after all the things that the world has to often offer if we are delighting and enjoying God. And so James says, draw near to God And then he elaborates some more on how to do that. Look what he says, verse 8, end of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. All right, next to the word hands, you might want to write the word actions, because usually when the Bible is speaking of hands, it's talking about actions. It's talking about your deeds. Clean your actions. Stop doing the worldly stuff and start doing something good and edifying. Maybe it means that you need to stop watching something and start studying your Bible or doing something helpful for someone else. Now, next to the word hearts, you can write the word attitude or even thoughts because purifying your hearts are going to involve both of these. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded He's saying, your hearts have been divided. You've been compromising. Your loyalties have been divided. You've been a double agent. You're double-minded. To purify your heart would be to become single-minded. All right, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, what's this talking about? Is Are we to be miserable, wretched people that never laugh? Oh, no. This is talking about the attitude that we're to have about our sin and in particular, our worldliness. This is talking about the attitude toward worldliness. James is saying, have godly sorrow over your sin. Now, here's the typical response that we have to worldliness And I'm speaking from um, experience. We laugh at it. We turn on our TVs and watch shows that depict filthy, godless entertainment that the world is watching and laughs at, and then we laugh at it too. And then we wonder why God seems so distant. James says it is right to mourn over our sin. And then we come to the other half of our humble sandwich. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I want to close out this passage with some encouragement and use um, a Bible passage that I think Illustrates this perfectly. I have uh, you can turn there uh, to Luke 15. I have the passage written on your paper. It is the story of the prodigal son. And after the son has spent all of his money, and he's lived been living with the pigs, and he's learned how hard and cruel the world is, he comes to his senses and decides to return to his father. Now watch what he does. We're going to pick up in verse 18 of Luke 15. The prodigal son says this I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, let's time out there. Um, He's humbling himself, isn't he? He's confessing his sin. He's confessing his sin and his plan to submit to the father. All right, now watch what the father does. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son humbles himself and returns to the father. And the father sees him from afar and begins to run to him. He's eager to embrace him. When James said, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, I wonder if he had this story in mind. If you have been having an adulterous affair with the world, if your affections have been divided, maybe you've been feeling distant from God. Here's James' encouragement. Walk away from the pigs and run back to God. God gives the greater grace. Here's our last point. Our greatest defense against worldliness is an intimate and passionate relationship with our compassionate God. Will you pray for me? With me? Um, Father, these are hard words. These are hard words. Because I know just from just personally, my, my affection and attachment to the world and all the things that are dangling in front of me. Father, I am so grateful that you are a God that is eager to embrace us and take us back when we humble ourselves. And I pray that you would help all of us to say no, to say no and resist the devil and to bow the knee. Could you help us to know exactly just personally and specifically how we can be faithful to these words and obey them to the glory of God. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.